Last time, in our study of 1 Peter, we looked at verses 13 through 16, and we talked about holiness in the life of the follower of Jesus. The big idea we came away with from that study was this, that holiness is not a set of things to do and not do. It's about understanding who we are, a child of God, and then living like it. In contrast to common human thinking, uh, which says this, we need to live a certain way, start doing certain things, stop doing certain other things, get our act together before we will be worthy and receive salvation. That kind of thinking is confused at its very core uh, in how things really work in the kingdom of God. That may be the way religion works, but it's not the way real Christianity works. Real Christianity is completely different from that. Here's the bad news. You and I are not able to get our act together enough to ever deserve salvation. It's just not possible. We can't deny ourselves enough pleasures. We can't pay enough penance. We can't do enough good deeds. We can't be nice enough, kind enough, loving enough, generous enough, long enough to ever do it. It is simply not within our capacity to do it with the broken, sinful nature that we have. We might have the desire to do it, but we are always tripping ourselves up in some way. All of us. But here's the really good news. We don't have to earn salvation to receive it. We don't have to get our act together and prove our worthiness in order for God to give it to us. God gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. God invites us to come into relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we are changed. We are born again. We are given a new life by God that springs up in us. And God grows that new life in us while we follow and obey Him. So here's the thrust of Peter's challenge to us, his readers. Pursue a life of holiness because you have received salvation. Be holy because your heavenly Father is holy and you are now His child. Be like your heavenly Father. See, in, in the same way that we can see certain traits present in the generations of a family as common genes get passed down, so holiness is a common trait of those who are of the spiritual lineage of Jesus Christ. Well, we're picking up in verse 17 today of 1 Peter chapter 1, which reads like this. It says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. In the original Greek manuscript, this verse begins with the word and linking it together with the preceding verses, which we talked about last time, and it continues this same thought line along. So we can think of it like this, and since you call on a father who. It says you call on a father. The first thing I want to draw our attention to in this passage we're looking at today is in these opening words, this relationship that the believer has with God through Christ. He is our Father. We are His children. 
We also made note of this relationship in our study of verses 13 through 16 last time. We seek to live a holy life because that is the nature of our Father. He's holy, and so His children are to be holy too. Seeing God as our Father is a revolutionary idea that Jesus Himself introduced in His teachings. Do you remember He taught us to pray, addressing God as our Father? The model prayer that Jesus gave us found in Matthew 6, 9, it begins with the words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, what kind of Father is God to us? He's the perfect Father. He is a flawless Father, and it's important for us to remember that. It's, it's natural, see, for us to see God through the lens of our earthly Father experience, but we need to be careful about doing that. For some, you've been blessed with a wonderful earthly father who loves you and protects you and provides for you in this life, or he did those things when you were younger. For you, seeing the Lord through the lens of that earthly father experience that you had, it can enhance your understanding of your heavenly father. But for others, you've not been so fortunate. Your earthly father may have been abusive, neglectful, may be completely absent from your life. For you, it's important that you not see your Heavenly Father through that lens. Your Heavenly Father is nothing like that. He loves you more than anyone has ever loved you. He is kind and compassionate and courageous and selfless and generous. He protects His children. He provides for them. He is attentive to their cry for help. He is the ideal father. He is the best father you could ever imagine having. Well, we need to hang on to this truth about the kind of relationship that we have with God, that he is our father, because Peter also introduces in the very next words of this verse another role of God in the lives of people, the role of judge. That sounds scary. Because on our own merits, we are all guilty and condemned. We will not stand up to the scrutiny of the all-knowing, holy God. He knows everything about us. Every dirty secret, every skeleton in our closet, everything about us is laid bare before the all-seeing eye of God, the judge. It says in verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. People have trouble trusting authority. Many of the institutions of authority in our country, for example, right now, are facing a lack of trust by people. The president, the Congress, the police, the mainstream media, the CDC, FEMA, the system, whatever that may mean for you, the system can't be trusted. Well, complicating that mistrust are the disagreements between people about which of these institutions we can and can't trust. Well, untangling all of that is far beyond something that I can do for you. What I want to affirm to you is that the greatest authority of all, God, can be trusted. God is an impartial judge. That means he treats everyone fairly. No one is going to get away with anything. He can't be bought off, bribed, tricked, or intimidated. 
His judgments can be trusted. You and I might not like God's judgments, but we can be confident that they are fair and just and trustworthy. Peter says here that he is a father who judges each person's work impartially. Since you call on this father, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, we're, we're going to talk about the living as strangers part of this verse in a moment. But right now, I want to talk about this living in reverent fear part. What does that mean, to live in reverent fear? Peter is talking to believers in this passage, so we know that he's not talking about living in fearful dread of God. By the grace and mercy of God extended to us through Jesus Christ, we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, we will not be condemned for our sin. That fear has been taken away for us. But we will stand before God and give account for how we have lived our life. Peter is calling us as followers of Jesus to sober consideration of that reality. Romans 14.10, for example, Paul writes, You then, who do you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. That's believer and unbeliever alike. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul was writing to believers when he wrote that. Fear is not always a bad thing. Fear can motivate us to do the right thing. For example, when I was a kid, fear of punishment motivated me many times to modify my behavior. I didn't want to get a spanking or get grounded or whatever other punishment they were hanging over my head at the time. I didn't want that. I feared that punishment, so I modified my behavior. Well, even as an adult, fear has served as a motivator for me to do the right thing. Several years ago, I made a casual California stop at a stop sign, and I was pulled over and given a ticket for it. I had to pay a fine, and then I had to sit through a day of traffic school. Well, as a result, I became a very careful driver. I make complete stops at stop signs now before proceeding through, because I don't want to pay any more fines or sit through any more traffic school. There is a reverent fear about standing before God to give account for my life that motivates me to seek to live a holy life. I want my Father to be pleased with me. Fear and safety are not things that we typically put together. We usually think of them as opposites. When we are afraid, we don't feel safe. When we are feeling safe, it usually means we are 
not experiencing fear. But for the child of God, these two apparently contradictory things, fear and safety, they come together as complements of one another. Jesus himself taught us to fear God, but also affirmed that we can trust God and find safety with him. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he follows that up with this. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Fear and safety are complements of one another for the child of God in this way. Peter, see, he reminds us that God judges each person's life, but Peter also reminds us of the very special relationships that we have with God through Christ. He is our Father, one we can trust completely, even in judgment. Well, let's go back now and talk about this living out your life as foreigners here. Foreigners, strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, temporary residents. We've talked before about this idea of believers being temporary residents in this life when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and then again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. And Peter's also going to bring this idea up again when we get to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. This is a key idea for Peter, and it should be a key idea for us as well. Embracing the idea that we are temporary residents in this life will have an impact on how we live, what motivates us, where we get our sense of worth, where our sense of peace and security come from. Before, we talked about the idea of putting up with the inconveniences and troubles that accompany a temporary residence. In verse 6, Peter talked about suffering, grief, and all kinds of trials being a part of this life where we are strangers, pilgrims, temporary residents. It's similar to us putting up with troubles when camping that we would not experience if we were living at home. When camping, it might rain on us. We might get dirt and ash in our coffee. We might get eaten alive by a mosquito swarm. You get the idea. Now, we come to another aspect of living our lives as temporary residents. Not only can we expect troubles and inconveniences in this life because this is not our home, but we should behave as though this is not our ultimate home either. That means we should hold the things of this world loosely, and we should live for a higher purpose than what this life has to offer. The Apostle Paul, he makes a similar point in his letter of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in this whole chapter he's talking about marriage and singleness and stuff, he tucks this very interesting passage in the middle of all that that talks about this temporary nature that we are living now and how we should live our lives in the midst of it. In verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 7, he says, 
What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. It's kind of like when I rent a car when I am on a trip somewhere. I get off the airplane in some location and I rent a car to get around while I'm there. And I remember that it's not my car. I'm not going to be allowed to put this car on the plane and take it home with me. It's not mine. I'm only renting it for a certain time period. No matter how much I enjoy this car, it's not mine. It's mine to use, but it's not mine to keep. And that's kind of the way we are to see everything in this world. It's, it's, it's ours to, to use, to utilize, to experience now, but it's not mine to keep in that way. This is a temporary place. Peter and Paul are telling us to remember that this world in its present form is passing away, to use Paul's words in that passage. We are temporary residents here. This is not all there is to our life. This is a small portion of our whole life that we will be living forever. We should be motivated by our eternal life rather than this temporary life. We should not live by the measuring sticks of this temporary life, but instead live for the approval of our Heavenly Father. Does living out our time here as temporary residents mean that we check out and disconnect and not care about what's going on in this world and this life? No, it doesn't mean that. In fact, because our sense of worth and motivations and ethics are rooted in our eternal life, we should have a clearer understanding of what is right and wrong in this life have motives that are selfless in this life, make decisions that truly benefit those in need, and so forth. See, not having the need for validation from others in this world because we are living for our Heavenly Father instead, it frees us to serve others. Not being driven by the need to hang on to everything that we have in this life because this life is all that we have, frees us to serve others. Seeing ourselves as a temporary resident, it doesn't disconnect us from the realities of this life, but frees us to live with a new kind of buoyancy and strength and courage where we find peace and security and joy that we wouldn't otherwise have. Well, let's continue in verse 18. We, we spent a lot of time on verse 17, didn't we? I'm sorry about that, but you know. Things happen. Verse 18, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter calls the things that are valued most in this world perishable. At that time, silver and gold were considered the things of greatest value in the world. 
These things are perishable. These things are mortal. They won't last forever. These particular metals will last a long time, but they will not last forever. They're part of this temporary life that we are living right now. Peter refers to our prior life before we received salvation and came into this relationship with God through Christ and received this new life from Him, our prior life as empty, futile, aimless, without purpose, uh, chasing after the wind, to use the words of the book of Ecclesiastes. My life before coming to faith in Jesus Christ could certainly be described as empty. It was hard to identify any kind of purpose for my life. My life was marked with a general feeling of boredom. Nothing seemed to satisfy me for very long. There was an unsatisfied hunger in my soul. When I came to Jesus Christ, I found something that satisfied me at the deepest part of my being. My soul was being touched and filled like it had never been before. He tells us, you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. The basic meaning of redemption is the rescuing or freeing of someone or something from some bad situation by the payment of a price. The one who pays the price to rescue the one in jeopardy is called the redeemer. The price paid is called the redemption price or the ransom price. Well, Jesus Christ, he is our redeemer, the one who has paid the price for our rescue, and Jesus Christ is also the redemption price or the ransom price that was paid for our rescue. The redemption price was his own life, his precious blood. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus said that he came to give his life as a ransom for us. That word precious, the precious blood of Christ, it's a beautiful word, isn't it? It conveys the tremendous value of the life of Jesus Christ. His life was extremely valuable, as all human life is. But further, his life was precious to his Father as his one and only Son. And still further, he's precious to us who are the recipients of Christ's redemption. He is precious beyond description because he has rescued us something we could not do for ourselves. He gave his own life to save us. He says here, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We have here a second concept introduced by Peter about what the death of Jesus was for us. First, Jesus is our Redeemer, the one who has purchased our rescue, and he's the redemption price that was paid for our rescue. But second, Peter also looks back to this Old Testament idea of substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus was the perfect, spotless lamb without blemish or defect who was sacrificed in our place as a substitute for us. His life was given in exchange for ours. We deserve to die for our sins, but he has died in our place for them. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you might remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he said to the people around him at the time, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, making reference to this 
substitutionary sacrifice idea that Peter is also referencing here in his letter. In verse 20, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. He was chosen or foreknown before the creation of the world. This is one of the most intriguing things in the whole of Scripture. The redemption of humanity was already thought of, foreseen, planned for, provisioned for, before it ever happened. The suffering and death of Christ as our Redeemer, as our substitutionary sacrifice, was determined before the creation of the world, before the foundations of the world. Does it mean that God knew humanity would ruin themselves, fall before it happened? Yes. Does it mean that God made preparation and provision for humanity's ruin, their fall, before it happened? Yes. Why did God create us in the first place than if he knew beforehand that we would fall, that we would ruin ourselves, that it would require the death of his own precious son to rescue us. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But he did. And it stands as a profound statement of God's love for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, it says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then there's John 3, 16 and 17, that familiar uh, verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Amazing! He knew what was coming, and yet He did it anyway, because He loves you, and He loves me. I can't get my little head around that, but it is an amazing truth, and I pray that God blesses you with it. Finally, verse 21 says, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. I'd like to read what Wayne Grudem wrote in his commentary on this verse. I think he sums up what Peter says here in this final verse of this passage we're looking at today much better than I could. He writes this, Peter concludes by reminding us that the God whom we are to fear as judge is also the God whom we trust as Savior. He planned our redemption in the councils of eternity. He sent forth His Son for our sake. He is the one whom we even now depend on. He raised Christ from the dead and glorified Him. And thus He is the one in whom we place all our trust and hope. The God whom Christians fear is also the God whom they trust forever. The God who has planned and done for them only good from all of eternity. In closing, I want to ask you, what kind of life do you have? Is it empty? You were made for more. God intends more for you than that. 
Jesus has paid the price for your redemption from this empty way of life. The price he paid to redeem you was his own life. Jesus has died in your place so that you can be declared innocent. God wants to give you a new life. He desires a relationship with you. He desires to give you a future that he intended for you all along. He has extended the invitation. And the question is, will you respond? Will you invite Jesus Christ to come into your life and save you from your ruin? You can respond to this invitation by God with a simple prayer. And I want to encourage you to do that today. Let's bow our heads together, everybody. And first, let's pray for, uh, let's pray this prayer. Those of you who want to receive Christ for the first time, pray with me this prayer. And then we'll close in prayer all of us together. Father God, thank you for giving the life of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, so I can be saved from the judgment against my sin. Give me this new life, this eternal life, and help me follow you from now on. Father, I pray for all of us in this moment. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have rescued us from our ruin. Lord, that you have redeemed us and that you, Lord Jesus, have substituted yourself for us so that we can go free. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us each one of your children this week with just a profound remembrance of how good you have been to us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.